Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Wolfi. If you enjoy this programming, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Join Truth and Rhythm's membership program through Patreon. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkandstuff.net. At that site, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I'm pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Command Center singer, bass, and keyboard player, and composer, Keode Adeomo, a founding member of Starpoint, one of the top army bands of the 1980s. Led by the lead vocals of Renee Diggs and featuring the Phillips family of four multi-instrumentalist brothers, Starpoint released 10 albums from 1980 to 1990, Four of those records reached number 32 or higher on the R&B charts. The band notched a dozen top 40 R&B hits, including the crossover classic Object of My Desire in 1985. A DMO also wrote 1988's pop smash, Girl, You Know It's True, from Millie Vanilli. Hi, how are you, man? Thank you so much for joining the show. I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing well, you know, uh, we were talking about before we came on, but uh, this has been a long time coming, so good to finally have you. Yeah. Glad to be here. And uh, where are you about today? Um, Hanover, Maryland. Okay, so uh, staying close to uh, your from there originally, right? That yeah. area. Um, yeah. Annapolis, Annapolis is home, but been hanging out in Hanover and other places. Yeah. So for those who don't know, where's our relation approximately to Baltimore, say? Well, um, Hanover is about 20 minutes from Baltimore, straight up 295. All right. The I, casinos out here. People know, I think people will know the casinos out here <laughs> and they have a big mall out here and whatnot. So. All right. Well, because I know Baltimore, you know, has gotten a lot of... Uh, attention for musicians coming out there a lot of funk guys you know things like that so i don't know if that trickles over to your neck of the woods or not well and actually annapolis is, was home for many many years so out of there now too mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Well, very cool to have you, Kai. I've been a fan of the group for, you know, decades and uh, really looking forward to getting into it. You know, when I was a, uh, I was a disc jockey, you know, throughout the uh, 80s and clubs and parties and things like that. So, you know, you guys helped keep the floor packed. I appreciate that. That's good. That's good. We tried to do our best we could. Uh-huh. So uh, let's dig into a little bit about your origins, uh, Kai. Um, my father's originally from Nigeria. And uh, my mother's from Barbados. They met in Michigan, in Ann Arbor. That's where I was born. And the dad went on to three days after I was born. He got into medical school at Howard. Thus, they named me Adekayade, which means the crown brings joy. Hopefully, I do. <laughs> and so uh, he went on to do medicine. And then in kind of like 1960, we went back to Nigeria for like a couple of years. And he decided he wanted to come back and do surgery. So he came back. He came back over. He went to, uh, I think it was Friedman's Hospital at the time. And now it's, I think it's Howard University Hospital. But it was Friedman's at the time. And uh, so in 69, when the riots and fires and all this stuff broke out, we moved to Annapolis. And he became one of the first black surgeons in the Annapolis area. And that's where introduction to the Phillips came in because their father was superintendent of Crownsville State Hospital. And my dad um, went to work there and became head of med surge there. He also had his own practice and he worked at the hospital there. So that's how my introduction to the Phillips were. And uh, basically, they kind of adopted me as a, another brother. <laughs> they didn't have enough? <laughs> <laughs> they had enough, trust me. We ran wild in Crownsville. <laughs> wow. So was there pressure from your uh, your your father, though, to, to go into a, a field like medicine and not music? I think the pressure was uh, probably on all of us. They probably expect us to go into medicine. And the funny thing about it is I remember when, like, Ernesto was at Howard, and he was at Howard, and a friend of ours, Marvin, who was also in the group, they were at Howard. And at the time, I think I was at, I was, uh, yeah, I was at uh, Anne Arundel and then ended up at the University of Michigan for about a year. So about about a year, we are all in different places for a minute. But uh, after 77, went to Nigeria for about two months. That's when the, the whole, I think the ball started rolling as far as us just saying that we wanted to become recording artists and whatnot, because that's when Ernesto and I really started woodshedding and started writing. That's where it really started. Um, and uh, Marvin, to a lesser degree, was involved with that. But what we would do is we would get in the basement, we write songs, and then we end up going into the studio. So this is previous to us being star point. This is how it all started. And what uh, drove you to music, do you think? And why those instruments? I don't know. I just, it was the atmosphere of being around them and we, the camaraderie of doing music. And uh, what we did was music and play sports. It was crazy. It was, you know, it was either soccer or basketball or something like that. Or after that, it was just music. So we'd all get into that. And Everybody in there had their own kind of influences. My my thing was basically creative with Ernesto. And that's where we formed our bond. We 
we did a lot of writing and a lot of wood shedding at the time. And, um, and then the influences came from listening to different things. Like Greg was a great influence on us as far as the jazz, the jazz side of music. He was a great influence on the band because he introduced us all kind of people like Return Forever, Gentle Giant, all these kind of different influences. It was really crazy. They kind of influenced. We we were like um, I, I used to say I, we were like the four by four dance people, but Greg was the jazz guy, you know. Mm -hmm. And then they had a subgroup from uh, the group called Effort Subtle Conference, which actually included uh, Greg Orlando. Ernesto, because I was in that, and Marvin. And they had this tight group that was a tight jazz group called Effort Subtle Conference. It was really crazy. Early on, who were a couple of your very favorite artists? Oh, man. I'm going to say, basically, uh, you know, was, I was a regular. Stevie, Earth, Wind, and Fire. But I think for our group, basically, um, when it really started, got started was Rufus Chaka Khan and actually Mother's Finest because we kind of envisioned ourselves as a kind of funk rock band at the time. That's I think those were the real main influences. Chaka was always a big influence to me. My all-time favorite. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And what about on bass and keyboards? Was there anyone, you know, that uh, was in another band or solo artist that inf influenced well, you? Let me put it this way. I'm more a bassist than anything else. That bass was my instrument. So my first funk hero, got to give it up to Bootsilla. <laughs> Bootsy was my man. And I mean, I remember back in high school, I in shot class, I was build, building a, a bass, a star bass. It was crazy. <laughs> I used to walk around with this thing. I never got it finished, but that he was a he was a super influence on us because I remember we played. We played with them at uh, Crampton Auditorium, and they left Greg on the drums because he was phenomenal. He was, I think he was about like 14. They left him on the drums. He was phenomenal. But I remember Bootsy was playing in that group that time. It was Funkadelic, and Bootsy was playing it. So he was like my first bass idol. I have a, I have a few, you know. Um, the second one would be Larry Graham, obviously. Um, Graham Central Station was one of my favorite groups back in the 70s. Um, and of course, Stanley Clark and Marcus Miller. And that's a real funny story about Marcus because we actually recorded our first albums at Minot Studios in White Plains. And that's where Marcus and uh, Luther did their albums. So. Mm, so do you remember meeting Marcus for the first time or? I never met Mark. I don't. Oh. I don't remember meeting Marcus. Honestly, okay. I never. <laughs> that which was crazy. I mean, we're in the same studio, but I never remember meeting Marcus. I love that Woodshop project, though, of a Starbase. You know, that's. Uh... Oh yeah, that was. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was a big. Boozy was a big influence on me. Love Bootsy, man. So there was an early group though called. Uh, Listen, Deanna. Listen, Deanna. Okay, yeah. let me let me take you chronologically because before Lee Indiana, there was JR and the Royals and the Royalettes. We had a like an eleven-piece band when we were back in high school. We used to do high gigs back then. We had four girl singers and a bunch of horns. 
So Nestor played trumpet. Lander played sax. Uh, the other brother played sax. Um, George played, I think, Farfisa keyboard. And Greg played drums. And then we had Ralph Jones, who came in and played. He was another sax player. So we had a big band at one time before we even got to Indiana. And then when George uh, and the other brother went, went away to school, Ernesto took over the group. And that's when Renee came in. And that's when Lis Indiana was formed. So there were many different contingents of Louisiana because back then, um, our fathers definitely had an influence on it. And mine, when my grades weren't good, he used to pull me out the band. <laughs> what, what was your uh, first impression of, of Renee? You know, um... I wish Renee could sing. I mean, way back when. She could, she could blow. I mean, you know, the thing about it is, you know, when you're young, you take things for granted, okay? You don't realize what you have. We had a real diamond in the rough, and we really didn't know it at the time, you know. But, you know, you're young. You don't, you don't pay attention to things like that. And hindsight, wow. She was, she was, I think she was right up there with Whitney. And Mariah, honestly, I really do. Could you describe to us, Kai, um, like the dynamic of the brothers? You know, what were they like? Did they, um, you know, a lot of times brothers kind of go at each other, or, uh, <laughs> but at the same time, they also can mesh together really well because they have that bond. Let me put it this way. We had a bunch of Indian chiefs and no, <laughs> but the, the, the guiding force was Ernesto, honestly. Um, we all, I mean, let me put it just this group was, as far as I'm concerned, was super talented. We had, I'm going to start from the youngest. We had Greg, that was a virtuoso at the time. At the time he first did this, Marvin was in the group too. He was a virtuoso keyboard player. He was one of the youngest. You know, um, Orlando, he could just play anything. Orlando started clarinet, ended up being a better bass player than I am. He was a tight bass player. Ernesto went from playing trumpet to learning guitar. And, uh, and then George played keyboards. I mean, and everybody in their own aspect, they had, they had different things that we really zoned in on. Mine, particularly, was writing, cr the creative aspect. So I, and, and I have to say, Nesta was, he was definitely our, a mentor because I would call Nesta up in the mornings and, hey, man, this is, I got this great idea, guy. And I would <laughs> sing stuff to him and he would interpolate it and whatnot. So, I mean, it, let me put it this way. A fiery group. But when we came on stage, it was like a team. We were just going after a championship. It was the chemistry was so strong. It was it was incredible. Where did you draw inspiration for your composing? Well, that's that's interesting. Um, I had a few heartbreaks. 
that's usually that's usually the thing that fuels your your passions like that. You know, I had a few breakups with girls as I was going along the way. So uh, you write some sad songs. Like for example, one of the songs that really got us started was "Don't Leave Me," and it's a prime example of what the group really was really about when it started because it has all three of the Ernesto, George, and Renee doing lead parts in the song. And the thing about it was the harmonies in that was, it really captured the, the essence of what that group was, the group was. And it was actually one of the first songs that got us signed. You changed the name before the first record, obviously. And is it right that the, the name was basically because of a Phillips head screwdriver? Let me tell you the real story here. <laughs> um, myself, I was over at Marvin Ennis's house. He was one of the keyboards and players at the time, one of the original members of the group. He did not sign with us. And Patrick Hoyt was over there. Patrick was a friend of ours from Guyana. So Patrick says to me, Kai passed me the star point. I said, what are you talking about? And then he points to the Phillips screwdriver. So I say to Marvin, hey, Marvin, that would make a great name. The name of the group, Phillips, that would make a great name. And Marvin was the one that suggested the name to the group. That's how we got the name Starpoint. Hmm. And so we expanded that um, meaning to point towards your goals, you know, shoot for the stars. That's, and that's how, that, that's how that really happened. Gotcha. Uh, Kai, how did you feel when you guys got that that deal? You know, were you through the the moon, or were you kind of like, oh, oh, now we got to deliver? <laughs> no, actually, we were pretty excited because I remember um, when we started doing the first album, we would go up on the weekends to White Plains and go in the studio and record and whatnot. So we were pretty gassed when we stayed up in White Plains for the weekend, recorded in the studio, and then we went home. Went back to school, went to do our jobs, whatever we were doing. And then the next weekend we would come out there. So it took us a couple of weekends. We went up there and we recorded the first album. And so on the first album, um, I was involved quite a lot with Ernesto because a lot of songs we co-wrote, like the lead single, single I Just Want to Dance with You. There was a couple of songs on there, like uh, Lift You Up that I co-wrote. And um, what's the other one? Oh, get ready, get down. There were a couple of, and those were, you know, kind of funk oriented, dance oriented stuff that we did. Cause I was kind of into the funk. I was at the time, I wasn't into slow stuff. I wanted to beat stuff, you know, get on the dance floor and, and groove. Yeah. Well, the band really started out with a lot of funk influence. You can hear it, you know, before it smoothed out a little bit. Yeah. Um, and that first record was produced by Lionel Job. What was he like to work with? Well, Lionel, Lionel was our, <laughs> he was a producer, manager the whole time that we were in the business, uh, which is, let me put it this way. It's kind of unorthodox because it, um, you, you usually have management to say, if you don't, you're not crazy about the production, you can complain to management. But we didn't have that situation. Let's put it this way. Sometimes we were not very happy with the situation. Let's put it that way. He he pulled a lot of weight in decisions, it sounds like. Yeah, he did. He did. But he had to uh, make sure he kept Ernesto and uh, Renee very happy. <laughs> the rest of us didn't count that much. 
rank and file, right? Yep. I well, mean, like I said, the group had so much talent that it was like too much. We only had that little space of star point to get out and stuff. It, eventually, you know, we had to get out and do stuff. It's, you know, it was just not enough room to do that. Well, that first album, uh, Kai, uh, I show uh, four singles came out. So, I mean, that's pretty good. That shows mm-hmm. the label was really believing in in the group and uh and the, and the one i just want to dance with you uh was a top 20 hit so yeah um, were you guys uh did you go out on tour uh immediately or did you still do another record after that we, we did another record in the year but i think um because our first our first gig was actually on my birthday uh august 18th in 1980 and we opened up for larry Grant when he had one in a million. So that, that was very memorable. And <laughs> that was, that was funny. It was a funny day Vincent, because Larry Graham was my idol. And that day I was pissed at him because they had a stage that was really deep. He probably gave us like five feet to, to play. So we got our first lesson in being the opening act, which was funny, you know? So, but we, we took that five feet and we, showed him a thing or two well so you must have mixed feelings since he was kind of a hero of yours on the base oh i was pissed at him for a while <laughs> I, I i'm not gonna lie to you i was i was really pissed at him for a while but i love larry man larry's a really great guy did you ever get to meet bootsy you know what i never got to meet bootsy i'd love to meet bootsy man because the funny thing about it on our second album I became the lead freaking Funkateer and keep on it. So if you hear the crazy voices, sort of like Bootsy, I was mimicking my idol. Well, so if you look at that record, you know, the picture of the band, you guys are in the spandex and, and that kind of thing. It's kind of like a funk or a funky look. I would say a little touch of disco maybe in the look, but mostly kind of a funk thing. What was the uh, presentation, uh, you know, concept for the group at that point? Well, at that we see that's where we were basically trying to find ourselves at that point. Um, we came across a little funk here because, you know, this first out record, they basically say, okay, that's more like a disco record. You need uh, it's going in the direction of funk now. So that's why Nesta and I we came up with um, we came up with um, keep on it, and uh, that was more of a direction that we were going but on that record also they had some really he had some really good songs on there too what was ernesto like uh, as, a, as a guy and just to work with man this is one of the nicest person you ever wanted me he was let me put it this dedicated um i think that's why we got along he was he was the discipline and i was the chaos <laughs> if you want to say it, he, he brought, he taught, he taught me a lot by, I used to say this thing when I was a kid, reading and writing is enough, but arithmetic, but repetition was too much. Well, he taught me how to do repetition. And that's very, very, very critical. If you're doing songwriting, you have to be disciplined in a certain way. And basically he really opened up the door for us doing that. Um, so I, we spent a lot of time together writing. 
um, especially in the first three albums. After that, basically, he 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 took flight, you know, and basically I kind of faded back. We just did stuff. I mean, because dynamics in the as we got older, the dynamics in the group kind of changed, and we kind of basically did some stuff that you know uh, more group oriented and stuff like that. And he did a lot of stuff writing by himself and producing. He got him more the producing side. And when did the relationship between he and Renee start? Was that from the beginning, or is that was, that was from the, that was from the onset? Yeah. <laughs> that fire started, uh, I think, the minute they met, and um, and she became the lead vocalist in the group because it was funny because for a minute after we had. We had a girl named Hunchy. Hunchy could blow. I mean, she was like Aretha. You know, that's with the the, the, the girls group when it was with um JR and the Royals, the Royalettes. So uh when we got when we got Renee, it was like, wow. We didn't we let me put it this way. At the time, we didn't appreciate it as much as we do now. You know what I'm saying? Hindsight is 2020. But uh we were blessed. We yeah, were really well, fortunate for everybody that, uh, you know, he happened to have a relationship with someone that had the goods. Otherwise, mm -hmm. who knows, you know, but yeah. Um, but and I, I will say, like, I'll say that Ernesto, he was, Ernesto was a teacher. Okay. I mean, because, I mean, he taught, he taught Renee a lot as, as far as singing because of his discipline and whatnot. He knew how to bring things out of her that, you know, really, um, to this day, I, I, I can see the teachings that he did because being around them and doing recording and stuff, you know, she did a lot of demos for us when we were doing stuff, you know, but we saw how he instructed her as far as that. And that went along with production and whatnot and our appetite for growing. Because as we, as we got into it, the second, the third, fourth album, we really wanted to produce ourselves, honestly. We felt at that point that we should should be able to. But, of course, we don't control that. Right. And so, you know, the first two records, you had a top 30, top 20 hit on each of them. Then you guys mm -hmm. went a couple of albums where you didn't really get that kind of single success. Yeah, let, me, let, me, let me put it this way. Uh, wanting you, a third album, came in with 66 with a bullet and we got no support from the label. So it came in hot because they radio liked it. And then all of a sudden they didn't support it. So it died. Was that just because of the uh, kind of chaos that was going on at Casablanca at the time? Well, yeah, the thing about it is I think it was a lot of changing, getting ready to go and see by the fourth album, we were out of there because Neil Bogart left the label. And we actually went over to his label. It's so delicious. You guys had a big hit with uh, Don't Be So Serious. Mm -hmm. And that kind of got you back in a groove, so to speak, again. And really, after that, you guys started rising and hitting your 80s stride, really. Yeah, well, that was that was on, on his label. And nine months into that, he passed away. And then we found ourselves, oh, we're on Electra now. Okay. 
<laughs> we didn't know how that happened, but all of a sudden, yeah, we are an electorate now, okay? So, and that's basically where the, I think that was the sixth album we did it. That's where the sixth album we did electorate. And then that's where we, lucky number seven came along because uh, Lionel had secured uh, Keith Diamond to produce it. And Keith, in, in the interim, went over to uh, England and produced Billy Ocean. And next thing you know, he had a big hit with uh, Billy Ocean. And then he was scheduled to do our album. So, of course, when they came back, I'm sure there were some negotiations they had to do. But this is fortunate, for, I will say fortunate for me. Um, I happened to be watching Wheel of Fortune uh, before this. And the title, Object of My Desire, came up. I said, man, that would make a great hit. That would make a great hook. And I went through seven variations. I call it Nesto. Nesto, I got something, man. I got something. <laughs> and when I got to him, it was rock. And then Mr. R.B. and Nesto says, do it like this. Sing song. Um, oh, yeah, man, that'll work. That'll work. So that's how Object came into fruition. It was uh, a creative process that went through. And basically, uh, I know uh, Greg was cursing me to, to this day about the drum beat because the drum beat came from my, I made up the drum beat. Do do, got to do do, got. <laughs> he looked at me <laughs> when we first had to do this. <laughs> he wanted to kill me. <laughs> he was making him work, but it, it, it that it was so funny how this came about because we did this at Ernesto's house, and Ernesto went to lay on the couch, and I played this stupid little line on keyboards. Ernesto, listen to this, and I remember us cracking up. And his words were prophetic. Suppose this is our biggest hit. How much of that album was done by the time that track came along? It was. It just that came along basically before we started the album. When it blew up like it did, you know, what was the reaction within the group? I think we were quite happy because uh, we we had been at this for we had been at this for a while. So, you know, um, it was not Renee's favorite song. <laughs> and I can tell it wasn't Orlando's favorite song either. <laughs> so, like he said, he was surprised. Uh, I don't think his brother George or Ernesto was surprised uh, because when we we played the, the original demo for George, I said, "Man, that's crazy, man! Y'all got one here." That was George's. George was the one that pulled it. You got one here, and then when we cut it. The ominous happened uh, when we were cutting the song. It was the first time we ever used a drum emulator, uh, the uh, uh, Lin drum. And Keith was programming the song. And two hours into the programming, it crashed. Oh, yeah. It crashed. So Object almost never made it on the album. He went back and did it. When, when the track was finished, it was killer. Um, I think. Doug Daniels at the time at Electra came in and heard it. He said, man, that's the single. That's the single. And I think Sylvia Roan, who was working with Electra at the time, heard it. And she said the same thing. That beat was too hard. It broke the machine. Mm -hmm. 
Blaming on Kai. <laughs> <laughs> uh, re- rewinding just a, a bit, um, do you remember when you first heard one of Starpoint's songs on the radio? Oh, my God. I think we were on our way up to New York. <laughs> and we came on the radio. We pulled off the side of the road in New Jersey Turnpike. And we were going off, and the trooper came back, and trooper came by and said, "We get playing a song." Okay, we have, calm down. You just got you can't do this here. You got to get back in the car. <laughs> so we were so excited when we heard it for the first time on the radio. And we just, you know, it was crazy. It, it, it was a wow. It was one of those moments. It's a, wow, our stuff was finally on the radio. It was. It was really. It was really neat. And I mean, Restless, it just came together, you know, all kinds of ways. You know, it was just a solid record through and through. Let me put it this way first. That was the best piece of work I think we've ever done. Um, and I will say this. I told, I, this is a prophetic say. I said this to the guys. I said, look, this label could screw this album up and we will still go gold. And I feel, I feel that's what they really, really did because they did not get the most out of the album. I think the sequence of songs that they put out could have been better. I, after, after Object, I would have probably put out See the Light because it was more in that dance vein. And, and I think it would have, it would have continued to maintain the, the success. Um, and, I, and I heard that um, Clive Davis told Lionel if he had that song, Object, he would have made it number one around the world so good old clive mm-hmm. well uh still you guys had um what three top almost three top tens through mm-hmm. one went to 11 off that record yeah so um we got a little wow. pop we got a little pop action off of object that's right yeah so do you do you ever uh did you ever wonder why more uh, material didn't cross over for Starpoint? Well, it you know, hits hits take timing. It has to be the right hook. It has to have the right promotion. It, it takes a lot for songs to get pushed the way they need to get. Plus, you're talking about um, back in, in the 80s. You weren't getting a lot of stuff like, I mean, MTV was big and it was growing, but you weren't getting a lot of R&B acts crossing over to, to, um, to MTV. I mean, it was a thing where uh, I do remember Columbia had to threaten MTV to pull all their artists unless they played Michael Jackson. So that's that was the era we were living in at the time. And so whereas... A song like that, if that if song like object really came out now, and it would have crossed. But the times back then, it, it wasn't so easy for R&B acts to cross. Well, you got you got Michael crossing, you got Prince crossing, you got um, you had um, Lionel Richie at the time. You know those cross, but most of the R&B acts, even as big as they got, never crossed. Yeah, I think they figured, uh, you know, you had BET. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the box. <laughs> what can you tell us about the Starpoint live show around then, you know, when you guys were peaking? 
Well, let me put it this. I think the peak of the Starpoint show is when when Object came out. Um, I'll give you a prime example because um, we were doing a show, I think, in Virginia. And this is one of the first times that our manager had come out to see us when we were just starting up um, this tour. I think it was 85, or early fall of 85. He got to witness when we started, when we, you know, got to the song and started playing the song. He looked out in the audience. I think it was the first time we've seen any one of our songs. People were out there singing the song word for word. Um, you know, as we got as we got more into touring in 85, like we started, we started in uh, kind of down south. We did a couple of gigs. And then we hooked up with uh, Morris Day when he went live. That's when we, we that's when we lit up. Morris was my man. He's like he's like my alter ego. Mm-hmm. And basically, I just loved. We just loved playing with Morris at the time. It was it was so much fun. We had we had a blast playing. You know, our set was probably like maybe thirty five minutes, and we we hit it. You know. Um, I think we were opened up with um, <laughs> Come and Get My It's All Yours. And that's the one song I got to play bass on, you know, because Lando usually plays based on most of the other stuff. And other stuff during that time, you know, everything went to keyboards and whatnot. So that was one song I used to get to play up front. It was cool. Uh, but I'm going to just tell you, we gelled as a unit. As that went on, um, it got hotter and hotter. And then the next year, we opened for Luther. And that was something else. And when we started opening up those, we were playing big concerts and whatnot. Uh, I will tell you, the most memorable concert probably was Madison Square Garden. Because he came down that day and said, gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, these guys are here for you tonight because you had the hottest song in the country. And I will tell you, it was a theater around. And when we hit the stage, the crowd was, we were left the stage, it was insane. It, it was just insane. I think that's the one night we took a show from Luther. And then we culminated by getting our gold albums that night. It was, it was, it was very memorable. Let's put it this way. Now I have a gold now, but I'm have a couple platinums too. <laughs> but that's another story. <laughs> did, did Starpoint do much choreography, or you guys just played and let Renee oh, do? No, no, no. We, we, yeah, we did choreo. Oh no, we had choreography. You know, it was funny. I remember a lot of videos we had to go do to, to dance studios, learn choreography, and some of that we took. And did in our live set, you know, it was crazy. Um, yeah, we we moved, and uh, I guess one of my jobs was being the hype man. <laughs> As a lead frequent funk there, I was a hype man, so I used to get them riled up. <laughs> yeah, like I can't hear you, kind of stuff to the crowd, and or you got the 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 people riled up, or the band riled up, or both. I would get both riled up. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> oh, that was fun. Fun times, man. I tell you, you know, I look back on that with a lot of with a lot of smiles, enjoyments. Because I'm telling you, when the unit was cooking, it was cooking, you know. And the, the things, one of the biggest things that we had was Greg's drum solo. Greg got a couple of drummers fired. <laughs> His solos were so intense. When he went and did that, it was crazy, man. It was crazy. Was there uh, any confusion, did you feel, like with uh, some of the other groups that were around that time, uh, like similar <laughs> names, like Atlantic Star, Midnight Star? Oh, of course there was. Yeah. <laughs> there were what, like what, four or five star groups at a time. Landing yeah. Star, Midnight Star, Five Star, you know. And some yeah. of them also had mostly guys and a female. Right. So like Midnight Star, yeah. you know, you know, just but but I think our sound was totally different, though. That was the thing that separated us. We tr we kind of strive to be, you know, it's about good songs, not gimmicky songs per se. Um that's one thing Lionel stressed. You know, he was he was a publisher before, so basically, you know, he was looking for good, strong material, and so that's why we kind of that was kind of our focus and whatnot was you know good, solid material. Was there ever a snafu when you guys were out on the road that was either funny or unfortunate? <laughs> okay, one one actually. One comes to mind. Um, we were playing down, I think it's Sunrise Theater in um, Fort Lauderdale. And I think we were on a thing with new shoes and somebody else. And we we're playing and the electricity went out. And so at that point, we went acapella and drums. <laughs> we kept rolling, you know, so... That's part of being uh, entertainers. You know, that's what you got to do. The show must go on. <laughs> that's where you try to get them to think it's part of the act. Oh, yeah. There you go. <laughs> Don't miss a beat. Keep going. Did you guys make many TV appearances? Did you do Soul Train and American Bandstand, that kind of thing? We did a few um, shows with Donnie Simpson, the Soul Train. We did a few. You know, not a whole lot, but we did a few. And, you know, BET was in D.C. at the time. So it was just, OK, let's go down the road. And we went in the studio and did a few interviews and whatnot. So it was cool. So as a hype man, Kai, were you, uh, did you soak up the stage? I mean, or did you ever get butterflies? No, nah, man, I was, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Usually off stage, I'm kind of an introvert. But when I hit the stage, it's old. I don't know when they hit a button. It's like, whoa, he's gone. <laughs> many, many a night, I would come off stage with whiplash, my neck was jumping around and acting so crazy, man. The energy of the stage, the feedback that you get from the people is what got us all going, man. That's the thing. Uh, you know, that's, that's the high for entertaining. So uh, after Restless, you know, what was the mindset? Did you think we got to repeat this? It's pressure or just kind of think uh, we're going to well, do our thing. I'm going to be honest with you. We were a little disappointed after Restless because we wanted to work with Keith again. But I think the label wasn't going to do that because I think he was totally into labels 
You know what I mean? Because they didn't do what they were supposed to do. So Lionel went out and got, uh, I think, Preston Glass did the, the next album. And you could tell the difference of it. I mean, he had some good songs, but we didn't have the guts that we had that was coming off the Restless album. You know, it, it lacked a, you know what I'm saying? Even though they did, he wants my body. I don't think the guys really appreciated that. You know what I'm saying? Renee loved it. But we're the guys, he wants my body. I don't think we liked it too much. <laughs> Thus. You know, the thing about it is, Preston had done some stuff with Whitney, but he did that also with Narada Michael Walden, which was different. You know, Narada was a drummer. And so the emphasis was a lot more. Because, and plus, when we came off of Restless, uh, we had written a tune, Ernesto, George, and myself, called Victim of Passion, which we all felt might have been the next hit, but they couldn't cut the demo. Well, despite that, I mean, you still got... Uh three top 30 hits on that record yeah but it wasn't the energy let me put it this way we went out and toured on that that album but it wasn't the same thing like restless we didn't have the energy like we you know we we weren't feeling that album as much as we feeling the other album you know we, we did some stuff on it but you know it wasn't it just did not have the same feel that we got from you know object and whatnot we played we played it but yeah we still played object as the last song when we on that tour because it was you know it was the one that really kicked that's one of the great things about doing these interviews uh, Mm -hmm. and and, you know sharing a little bit of what went on behind the scenes because you know longtime fans you know a lot of times they don't know what was happening behind the scene that might impact the music or songs or what have you. So getting a a deeper understanding of that uh, makes them think, Oh, well, I kind of, you know, didn't like that as much. Uh, So uh, no wonder that makes sense. They were challenged by this, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. That's true. That is very true. So then, you know, after that experience, what did you bring into that next record? Well, actually, Nesta wrote a, I think that was number that was number nine. Oh, he wrote a track on this thing that we should have done. I thought it should have been single. Um, I can't even remember the name of the song now, but that was jamming. That's probably one of the jamming tracks that I think Nesda ever wrote. Um, oh, I can't remember. Right now, it's, it's slipping my memory. But it was a dope track. In fact, I remember going up to New York and doing what I called a bass mix on that song. That song was so funky, but Renee wasn't singing lead on it. See, that was that was <laughs> if Renee wasn't singing lead on it, it was not going to be a single, you know. And I think basically, if, if she had sung lead on that song, we would have had another hit. We really would have had another hit because that song was it was something, you know. Hmm. I'm wondering what, let me just give the titles and you say which one it was, because they don't show the writing credits here. It's hot to the touch. Oh, okay. <laughs> I just remembered, <laughs> you know, it was hot to the touch. Your love is hot to the, man, that track was killing. I think that's my favorite up-tempo tune that Ernesto wrote, hot to the touch. Yeah. You had some new people on this too from the past, um, you know, um, like 
Jeff Bova was on there and uh, Jimmy Browler. Yeah, those uh, basically, um, I think, wasn't it the album that was produced by uh, um, um, Bernard, Bernard Edwards. Edwards? Yeah. Yeah. We were, <laughs> Bernard was uh, a favorite of mine until we did this album. Let me put it that way. You know, I, I loved I loved Sheik back in the day. But uh, I was a little disappointed, but just, you know, <laughs> we won't get into the details, but just to say we were a little disappointed. Yeah. Some of those guys were his, his guys. I know like yeah. Bova and yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, some of the tracks at that point, in at that point, I mean, we were doing tracks at home that we thought were better. You know what I'm saying? <clears throat> See, but we didn't have the opportunity to go and produce like that. I mean, and that's to produce Hot to the Touch. I think that was one of the better tracks on the album. You know. Were you continuing to tour at that point, or, or was the touring pulled back? Um, I think we, the last tour was 87. Um, because what had happened in 85, 86, that's when Renee got diagnosed with um, MS. And so it, it started to be a little difficult for her. Um, that that's when it started to be, you know, it was kind of rough, which was kind of sad. Did that impact the studio work too, or just doing live shows? Yeah, it, it, it kind of did. I mean, because he wasn't strong and you know, you never knew when the attack was going to happen. And sometimes it affected their vocal cords, you know, sometimes yeah. it affected that so and, and that must have been just tough on ernesto too just you know i was tough yeah it was tough it was really yeah. tough you know mm. you know so after that you guys ended up only doing one more record right in uh, uh we actually did two, well, that was nine yeah ten we did uh, the last one with teddy riley which i thought was a dope album it's just that we didn't get any support and i think Basically, what happened is that's when Anesta and the label didn't see eye to eye on something, which was with the uh, with <laughs> with Krasnow. and so they got into it. In fact, George George and I produced something with Bill Pettaway on that album. That a song actually we wrote for Millie Vanilli, um, "True Love." that ended up on our album, we ended up doing it. So it was the most different thing on the album. So. Yeah, so you got some it. New Jack Swing flavor, getting Teddy Riley in there and some of those other oh, guys. Yeah. yeah. That, some of that stuff, I, I really like that stuff that Teddy did. But, uh, you know, we didn't get the sport. We didn't get the sport because she was sick. And people didn't, they really didn't, the label didn't understand that. And, um that's when we really got uh, dropped from the we got dropped from the label at that point, you know. So basically, we got kind of blackballed out the industry. How did you guys process that? How did you take it? Well, you know, like just like everything else, you, 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 after a while, it's kind of run its course, and you're probably kind of exhausted <laughs> at that point. And you were ready for something new. Meanwhile, I was doing other stuff on the outside, just working with other projects and 
you know, um, our focus was otherwhere. So, you know, we were, we were ready to make transitions, basically. Well, what was your story with, uh, you know, the Millie Vanilli track? Oh, that's that's a friend of mine, Bill Petaway. Um, he was producing a group called the New Marks from Baltimore. And in that group at the time was a young 16-year-old named Kevin Lyles. I think you're familiar with that name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was the now president of four, what, 300 and Electra. Well, he uh, had a girlfriend at the time, and he started writing a song about this girl. And the story is the tape came out of the trash. <laughs> he picked it up. Uh, Bill had gone in the studio and got to this point. And he plays this thing for me. He says, uh, can I listen to this? And he got to, um, this is true. And it got to that point, this is true. And this, just like that, I will say like that, I was just being a channel. The girl, you know, it's true. Ooh, 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 came down just like that. Yes, you know, it's true. So, and basically what we did is we went into studio probably a couple of days later. Uh, for the first couple of hours, I listened to a, uh, I guess it was new additions, a vocal coach tried to teach the guys to sing the back part. I told them to get out of there. And then basically went ahead and arranged the song. So I said, Kevin, give me your best 16 bars. Right, give me your best 16 bars. And I had brought my uh, a friend of mine, Charlie Hennyberger, to come in and he sang the hook. And then we just sat in and pieced it together. Now, the smartest thing we ever did, I said, Bill, we're going to copyright this. Okay? We're going to protect this. And that's the thing that saved us all. So then when it became a, a hit, I mean, what was your reaction? What was your mindset? It, well, the funny thing is that um, we had gone down to the studio about a year later, and we saw these two clowns. Well, we got out with clowns on it, and they were laughing. And I got in a copy of it. And I played it for George. George said, man, y'all guys are going to be laughing all the way to the bank. And next thing we know is blowing up all over Europe. You know, because basically it was an underground hit, the New March version, and Frank Farron copied it from a club and, and just hired the guys and put them together. So, But early on, you knew that it was a facade, right? Well, let me put it this way. They couldn't hardly speak English. <laughs> So what do you think? I don't think they could speak English too well. So, but they could sing it real good and rap real good. <laughs> yeah, and didn't they get the Grammy also? And they got it taken back. <laughs> I mean, that's one of the biggest music scandals there was. Yeah, I'm gonna tell you something. Um, I met Fab. Fab is a great guy, though. I mean, Rob passed away, but Fab. He's a wonderful guy, man. Love him. He's a great guy. So, and what are some other things that you got working on, Kai? Well, back then, uh, George and I had a production company. We had one of the first female rappers back then. We were working with um, um, Ms. Mitchell, but unfortunately, she passed. So, we had a little single out that was on Grudge Records, uh, BMG. And 
And then we were, we were just doing woodshedding, doing writing and whatnot. Uh, but I will tell you, my partner and I have, do have some new Starpoint material out. It's on YouTube if you want to go to it and follow it. Basically, uh, the first album, was, it was called Tribute. Because we basically, that's what I wanted. I wanted to do a tribute to Nestor Renee. Not everybody was in agreement with it. Therefore, we got a, got a little conflict. Um, we also have another album out called um, Fake News Music. And there's one called The Fault, number volume one. On that one, I think you like it. There's a track called um, Love Me Now. I think it's Love Me Now. How, how old is some of that material? How new is some of that material? Well, the thing about that, basically, we, we had recorded Renee a little while ago, back when she was alive. And so basically... You just you know how technology is now. We put it together with the, with the hooks and whatnot, and did what we can. I mean, it's it's been sad because we lost Ernesto first, then we lost her, and then recently we just lost George. So it's been a sad thing. It's like you're helping keep the legacy alive, you know, with that music and also doing this. Um, how do you feel about how the band's regarded and how the music has uh, held up over time? Well, let me put it this way. We appreciate the fans. We appreciate the love that we get from the folks out there to hear stuff. You know, everybody has their own favorites. I mean, for me, basically, I will tell you that uh, some of the stuff that Ernesto left, man, as far as ballads and mid-tempos are gems. They're real gems, man. You know, some really, really good songs that people don't hear all the time. You know, you just basically just go and delve into one of our 10 albums, some of those slow songs on there. One of my favorites is on, the, I think, the first or second album is called For You. It was a great ballad, you know, and then people find this stuff, you know. Oh, we never knew they did this. And then boom, you know, <laughs> we get that, you know. It's so it's, it's, it's very gratifying when people, you know, appreciate what you do. Extremely gratifying. And I think that, I think we all feel that. You know, hopefully and, one day we can. Um, and let me put it this way. The energy of Starpoint did not leave when Renee died and when, when Ernesto died, because we subsequently, 2011, we went out and did another concert in France, you know, with George. And that's the last time we ever played together. You know, it was an experience. I mean, we had a friend of ours who was uh, Renee's um one Renee used to be her vocal coach, Tracy Hamlin. And she, you know, she did what she could. I mean, she's she, not Renee. She was a little more soulful, but she she it was a great concert. So we have footage of that on YouTube if you want to ever go check it out. Our live concert that we did in France. It's at um Starpoint 2011 Leon France. You get to see me clown as lead freak and folk frontier and keep on it. <laughs> and a bunch of other songs that we did that we never played live, but we did there. Hmm. And how can people keep up with, uh, you know, what's going on? How can they get downloads or stream or whatever of the music you were talking about? Well, okay. We have stuff all on uh, um, all the platforms. So we have stuff on Spotify. We have stuff on um, uh, stuff on Apple Music. Is have stuff on title. So if they look for not any of the titles I talked about, you know, like um, fake news music, 
that's some of the newer stuff. Um, um, the vault number one. That's if you're looking for the newer stuff, that's that's where you find it. Uh, all the old stuff is uh, all over the place. You can get it. Right. I mean, YouTube, you, you know, Apple Music. Um, if you want to get like the first three albums, you probably have to find them on YouTube. I don't think they're on Apple Music or anything. So through it all, Kai, what would you say, you know, what are you most proud of musically accomplishing, would you say? Well, heck, I got two hits out of it, so I'm pretty proud of that, <laughs> you know. But, you know, I really cherish the times that we, when we used to play, I mean, like I said, we did grad nights. We were doing three concerts a night, like 12, 2, and 4 o'clock in the morning in L.A. But we were, I don't think we were ever tighter then. You know, we would come up on the stage jamming, like an intense 35-minute set that we had to do. But we were tight then. It was, and you know, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. We didn't make a whole lot of money then, but, you know, it was a whole lot of fun. Well, hey, is there any parting message you'd like to get out to your fan base? Hey, just folks, we love you. We appreciate the love that you sent our way. Um, hopefully, you might send out something new one day if we get our heads together. All right. Well, we're always hopeful, always hopeful for that, you know. But in the meantime, I mean, so much great music, 10 albums full of great songs and great material and ballads and up-tempo and so much variety and so much um you know, scale and quality in what you guys did. So thank you so much for all that fantastic music. You know, I think we were very blessed to have the opportunity to do that. When in hindsight, you know, not everybody gets that opportunity. Um, usually some people get a one shot. The fact that we had to get, we were able to do 10 albums out there. It's a blessing. And I hope we appreciate it. And we do appreciate the fans and we do appreciate your time. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Truth and Rhythm. A big thank you goes out to our guest as well as to you, the viewer and listener. Also, much gratitude to Pleasure for supplying the show's funky opening and closing music. As a reminder, you can always access the complete list of linked shows by episode at funkinstuff.net. I urge you to support this program and receive the extra benefits along with that by subscribing to the Funk and Stuff channel on YouTube and sharing it with funk, R&B, and jazz lovers, joining Truth and Rhythm's membership program at Patreon, submitting a donation at funkandstuff.net, buying Everything is on the One, the first guide to funk book at Amazon, shopping at the Funky Things store for cool merchandise at funkandstuff.net, and linking through funkandstuff.net for all of your Amazon purchases. In addition, if you're an artist or anyone seeking proven, results-oriented, professional marketing, PR, writing, or editing consultation or production, check out the media services section at funkinstuff.net. Also, I encourage you to drop me a line at scottg at funkinstuff.net. I love the feedback, suggestions, guest requests, appearance and sponsorship inquiries, and just talking about my favorite subject, groove-based music. For now, and as always, this is Scott Dr. GX Wolfine saying, keep on keep vibing, on vibing to the rhythm of the one.